Section 7 of Three Soldiers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by M.B. Three Soldiers by John Dos Passos. Section 7. 2. As far as he could see in every direction were the grey trunks of beeches, bright green with moss on one side. The ground was thick with last year's leaves that rustled maddeningly with every step. In front of him his eyes followed other patches of olive drab moving among the tree trunks. Overhead, through the mottled light and dark green of the leaves, he could see now and then a patch of heavy gray sky, grayer than the silvery trunks that moved about him in every direction as he walked. He strained his eyes down each alley, until they were dazzled by the reiteration of mottled grey and green. Now and then the rustling stopped ahead of him, and the olive-drab patches were still. Then, above the clamour of the blood in his ears, he could hear batteries pong, pong, pong in the distance, and the woods ringing with a sound like hail as a heavy shell hurtled above the treetops to end in a dull rumble miles away. Crisfield was soaked with sweat, but he could not feel his arms or legs. Every sense was concentrated in eyes and ears, and in the consciousness of his gun. Time and again he pictured himself taking sight at something grey that moved and firing. His forefinger itched to press the trigger. He would take aim very carefully, he told himself. He pictured a dab of grey starting up from behind a grey tree trunk and the sharp detonation of his rifle, and the dab of grey rolling among the last year's leaves. A branch carried his helmet off his head so that it rolled at his feet and bounced with a faint metallic sound against the root of a tree. He was blinded by the sudden terror that seized him. His heart seemed to roll from side to side in his chest. He stood stiff as if paralyzed for a moment before he could stoop and pick the helmet up. There was a curious taste of blood in his mouth. I'll pay him for that, he muttered between clenched teeth. His fingers were still trembling when he stooped to pick up the helmet, which he put on again very carefully, fastening it with the strap under his chin. Furious anger had taken hold of him. The olive-drab patches ahead had moved forward again. He followed, looking eagerly to the right and the left praying he might see something. In every direction were the silvery trunks of the beeches, each with a vivid green streak on one side. With every step the last year's russet leaves rustled underfoot, maddeningly loud. Almost out of sight among the moving tree trunks was a log. It was not a log, it was a bunch of grey-green cloth. Without thinking, Crisfield strode towards it. The silver trunks of the beeches circled about him, waving jagged arms. It was a German, lying full length among the leaves. Crisfield was furiously happy in the angry pumping of blood through his veins. He could see the buttons on the back of the long coat of the German, and the red band on his cap. He kicked the German. He could feel the ribs against his toes through the leather of his boot. He kicked again and again with all his might. 
The German rolled over heavily. He had no face. Chrisfield felt the hatred suddenly ebb out of him. Where the face had been was a spongy mass of purple and yellow and red, half of which stuck to the russet leaves when the body rolled over. Large flies with bright, shiny green bodies circled about it. In a brown, clay-grimed hand was a revolver. Crisfield felt his spine go cold. The German had shot himself. He ran off suddenly, breathlessly, to join the rest of the reconnoitering squad. The silent beaches whirled about him, waving gnarled boughs above his head. The German had shot himself. That was why he had no face. Crisfield fell into line behind the other men. The corporal waited for him. "'See anything?' he asked. "'Not a goddamn thing,' muttered Crisfield, almost inaudibly. The corporal went off to the head of the line. Crisfield was alone again. The leaves rustled maddeningly loud underfoot. Three. Crisfield's eyes were fixed on the leaves at the top of the walnut trees, etched like metal against the bright colorless sky, edged with flicks and fringes of gold where the sunlight struck them. He stood stiff and motionless at attention, although there was a sharp pain in his left ankle that seemed swollen enough to burst the worn boot. He could feel the presence of men on both sides of him and of men again beyond them. It seemed as if the stiff line of men in olive drab standing at attention, waiting endlessly for someone to release them from their erect paralysis, must stretch unbroken round the world. He let his glance fall to the trampled grass of the field where the regiment was drawn up. Somewhere behind him he could hear the clinking of spurs at some officer's heels. Then there was the sound of a motor on the road suddenly shut off and there were steps coming down the line of men, and a group of officers passed hurriedly, with a business-like stride, as if they did nothing else all their lives. Crisfield made out eagles on tight khaki shoulders, then a single star and a double star, above which there was a red ear and some gray hair. The general passed too soon for him to make out his face. Crisfield swore to himself a little because his ankle hurt so. His eyes traveled back to the fringe of the trees against the bright sky. So this was what he got for those weeks in dugouts, for all the times he had thrown himself on his belly in the mud, for the bullets he had shot into the unknown at gray specks that moved among the gray mud. Something was crawling up the middle of his back. He wasn't sure if it were a louse or if you were imagining it. An order had been shouted. Automatically he had changed his position to parade rest. Somewhere, far away, a little man was walking towards the long, drab lines. A wind had come up, rustling the stiff leaves of the grove of walnut trees. The voice squeaked above it, but Crisfield could not make out what it said. The wind in the trees made a vast, rhythmic sound like the churning of water astern of the transport he had come over on. Gold flicks and olive shadows danced among the indented clusters of leaves as they swayed, as if sweeping something away against the bright sky. 
an idea came into Chrisfield's head. Suppose the leaves should sweep in broader and broader curves until they should reach the ground and sweep and sweep until all this was swept away, all these panes and lice and uniforms and officers with maple leaves or eagles or single stars or double stars or triple stars on their shoulders. He had a sudden picture of himself in his old comfortable overalls, with his shirt open so that the wind caressed his neck like a girl blowing down it playfully, lying on a shuck of hay under the hot Indiana sun. Funny he'd thought all that, he said to himself. Before he'd known Andy, he'd never have thought of that. What had come over him these days? The regiment was marching away in columns of fours. Crisfield's ankle gave him sharp, hot pain with every step. His tunic was too tight, and the sweat tingled on his back. All about him were sweating, irritated faces. The woolen tunics with their high collars were like straitjackets that hot afternoon. Crisfield marched with his fists clenched. He wanted to fight somebody, to run his bayonet into a man as he ran it into the dummy in that everlasting bayonet drill. He wanted to strip himself naked, to squeeze the wrists of a girl until she screamed. His company was marching past another company that was lined up to be dismissed in front of a ruined barn, which had a roof that sagged in the middle like an old cow's back. The sergeant stood in front of them with his arms crossed, looking critically at the company that marched past. He had a white, heavy face and black eyebrows that met over his nose. Crisfield stared hard at him as he passed, but Sergeant Anderson did not seem to recognize him. It gave him a dull, angry feeling, as if he'd been cut by a friend. The company melted suddenly into a group of men unbuttoning their shirts and tunics in front of the little board shanty where they were quartered, which had been put up by the French at the time of the Marne, years before, so a man had told Andy. "'What are you dreaming about, Indiana?' said Judkins, punching Crisfield jovially in the ribs. Crisfield doubled his fists and gave him a smashing blow in the jaw that Judkins warded off just in time. Judkins's face flamed red. He swung with a long, bent arm. "'What the hell do you think this is?' shouted somebody. "'What's he want to hit me for?' spluttered Judkins, breathless. Men had edged in between them. "'Let me get at him!' "'Shut up, you fool!' said Andy, drawing Crisfield away. The company scattered sullenly. Some of the men lay down in the long, uncut grass in the shade of the ruins of the house, one of the walls of which made a wall of the shanty where they lived. Andrews and Crisfield strolled in silence down the road, kicking their feet into the deep dust. Crisfield was limping. On both sides of the road were fields of ripe wheat, golden under the sun. In the distance were low green hills fading to blue, pale yellow in patches with the ripe grain. Here and there a thick clump of trees or a screen of poplars broke the flatness of the long, smooth hills. In the hedgerows were blue cornflowers and poppies in all colors from carmine to orange that danced in the wind on their wiry stalks. 
at the turn in the road they lost the noise of the division and could hear the bees droning in the big dull purple clover heads and in the gold hearts of the daisies you're a wild man chris what the hell came over you to try and smash poor old judkey's jaw he could lick you anyway he's twice as heavy as you are chrisfield walked on in silence god i should think you'd had enough of that sort of thing i should think you'd be sick of wanting to hurt people you don't like pain yourself do you andrews spoke in spurts bitterly his eyes on the ground i think i sprained my goddamn ankle when i tumbled off the back of the truck yesterday better go on sick call say chris i'm sick of this business almost like you'd rather shoot yourself than keep on i guess you're getting the dolefuls andy look let's go in swimming there's a lake down the road i've got my soap in my pocket we can wash a few cooties off don't walk so goddamn fast andy you got more learning than i have you ought to be able to tell me what it is makes a feller go crazy like that i guess i got a bit of the devil in me andrews was brushing the soft silk of a poppy petal against his face i wonder if it'd have any effect if i ate some of these he said why they say you go to sleep if you lie down in a poppy field wouldn't you like to do that chris and not wake up till the war was over and you could be a human being again andrews bit into the green seed capsule he held in his hand a milky juice came out it's bitter i guess it's the opium he said what's that a stuff that makes you go to sleep and have wonderful dreams in china dreams interrupted chrisfield i had one of them last night dreamed i saw a feller that had shot hisself that i saw one time reconnoitering out in the bringy wood what was that nothing just a fritzy had shot hisself better than opium said andrews his voice trembling with sudden excitement i dreamed the flies buzzing round him was aeroplanes remember the last rest village and the major who wouldn't close the window you bet i do they lay down on the grassy bank that sloped from the road to the pond the road was hidden from them by the tall reeds through which the wind lisped softly overhead huge white cumulus clouds piled tier on tier like fantastic galleons in full sail floated changing slowly in a greenish sky the reflection of clouds in the silvery glisten of the pond's surface was broken by clumps of grasses and bits of floating weeds they lay on their backs for some time before they started taking their clothes off looking up at the sky that seemed vast and free like the ocean vaster and freer than the ocean sarge says a d lousin machine's coming through this way soon we need it chris andrews pulled his clothes off slowly it's great to feel the sun and the wind on your body isn't it chris andrews walked towards the pond and lay flat on his belly on the fine soft grass near the edge it's great to have your body there isn't it he said in a dreamy voice your skin's so soft and supple and nothing in the world has the feel a muscle has 
Gee, I don't know what I'd do without my body. Chrisfield laughed. Look how my old ankle's raised. Found any cooties yet? he said. I'll try and drown em, said Andrews. Chris, come away from those stinking uniforms and you'll feel like a human being with the sun on your flesh instead of like a lousy soldier. Hello, boys, came a high-pitched voice unexpectedly. A Y man with a sharp nose and chin had come up behind them. Hello, said Chrisfield sullenly, limping towards the water. Want the soap? said Andrews. Going to take a swim, boys? asked the Y man. Then he added in a tone of conviction, That's great. Better come in, too, said Andrews. Thanks, thanks. Uh, say, if you don't mind my suggestion, why don't you fellows get under the water? You see, there's two French girls looking at you from the road. The Y man giggled faintly. <laughs> they don't mind, said Andrews, soaping himself vigorously. I reckon they like it, said Chrisfield. I know they haven't any morals, but still. And why should they not look at us? Maybe there won't be many people who get a chance. What do you mean? Have you ever seen what a little splinter of shell does to a fellow's body? asked Andrews savagely. He splashed into the shallow water and swam towards the middle of the pond. You might ask him to come down and help us pick the cooties off said Chrisfield, and followed in Andrews's wake. In the middle he lay on a sandbank in the warm, shallow water, and looked back at the Y-man, who still stood on the bank. Behind him were other men undressing, and soon the grassy slope was filled with naked men and yellowish-gray underclothes, and many dark heads and gleaming backs were bobbing up and down in the water. When he came out, he found Andrews sitting cross-legged near his clothes. He reached for his shirt and drew it on him. "'God, I can't make up my mind to put the damn thing on again,' said Andrews in a low voice, almost as if he were talking to himself. "'I feel so clean and free. It's like voluntarily taking up filth and slavery again. I think I'll just walk off naked across the fields.' "'Do you call serving your country slavery, my friend?' The Y man, who had been roaming among the bathers, his neat uniform and well-polished boots and puttees contrasting strangely with the mud-clotted, sweat-soaked clothing of the men about him, sat down on the grass beside Andrews. "'You goddamn right I do. You'll get into trouble, my boy, if you talk that way,' said the Y man in a cautious voice. "'Well, what is your definition of slavery?' You must remember that you are a voluntary worker in the cause of democracy. You're doing this so that your children will be able to live peaceful. Ever shot a man? No. No, of course not. But I'd have enlisted, really I would. Only my eyes are weak. I guess so, said Andrews under his breath. Remember that your women folks, your sisters and sweethearts and mothers are praying for you at this instant. I wish somebody'd pray me into a clean shirt, said Andrews, starting to get into his clothes. How long have you been over here? Just three months. The man's sallow face, with its pinched nose and chin, lit up. But, boys, those three months have been worth all the other years of my men— He caught himself. Life. 
I've heard the great heart of America beat. Oh, boys, never forget you are in a great Christian undertaking. Come on, Chris, let's beat it. They left the Y-man wandering among the men along the bank of the pond, to which the reflection of the greenish, silvery sky and the great piled white clouds gave all the free immensity of space. From the road they could still hear his high-pitched voice. And that's what'll survive you and me, said Andrews. Say, Andy, you sure can talk to them guys, said Chris admiringly. What's the use of talking? God, there's still a bit of honeysuckle in bloom. Doesn't that smell like home to you, Chris? Say, how much do they pay these Y-men, Andy? Damned if I know. They were just in time to fall into line for mess. In the line, everyone was talking and laughing, enlivened by the smell of food and the tinkle of mess kits. Near the field kitchen, Chrisfield saw Sergeant Anderson talking with Higgins, his own sergeant. They were laughing together, and he heard Anderson's big voice saying jovially, We've pulled through this time, Higgins. I guess we will again. The two sergeants looked at each other and cast a paternal, condescending glance over their men, and laughed aloud. Chrisfield felt powerless as an ox under the yoke. All he could do was work and strain and stand at attention, while that white-faced Anderson could lounge about as if he owned the earth and laugh importantly like that. He held out his plate. The K.P. splashed the meat and gravy into it. He leaned against the tar-papered wall of the shack, eating his food and looking sullenly over at the two sergeants, who laughed and talked with an air of leisure, while the men of their two companies ate hurriedly as dogs all round them. Chrisfield glanced suddenly at Anderson, who sat in the grass at the back of their house, looking out over the great white fields, while the smoke of a cigarette rose in spirals about his face and his fair hair. He looked peaceful, almost happy. Chrisfield clenched his fists and felt the hatred of that other man rising stingingly within him. Guess I got a bit of the devil in me, he thought. The windows were so near the grass that the faint light had a greenish color in the shack where the company was quartered. It gave men's faces, tanned as they were, the sickly look of people who work in offices when they lay on their blankets in the bunks made of chicken wire, stretched across moldy scantlings. Swallows had made their nests in the peak of the roof, and their droppings made white daubs and blotches on the floorboards in the alley between the bunks, where a few patches of yellow grass had not been completely crushed away by footsteps. Now that the shack was empty, Chrisfield could hear plainly the peep-peep of the little swallows in their mud nests. He sat quiet on the end of one of the bunks, looking out of the open door at the blue shadows that were beginning to lengthen on the grass of the meadow behind. His hands, that had got to be the color of terracotta, hung idly between his legs. He was whistling faintly. His eyes, in their long black eyelashes, were fixed on the distance, though he was not thinking. He felt a comfortable, unexpressed well-being all over him. It was pleasant to be alone in the barracks like this, when the other men were out at grenade practice. There was no chance of anyone shouting orders at him. 
A warm drowsiness came over him. From the field kitchen alongside came the voice of a man singing, Oh, my girl's a Lulu, every inch a Lulu, is Lulu that pretty little girl of mine. In their mud nests the young swallows twittered faintly overhead. Now and then there was a beat of wings, and a big swallow skimmed into the shack. Chrisfield's cheeks began to feel very softly flushed. His head drooped over on his chest. Outside the cook was singing over and over again in a low voice, amid a faint clatter of pans. Oh, my girl's a Lulu, every inch a Lulu, is Lulu that pretty little girl of mine? Chrisfield fell asleep. He woke up with a start. The shack was almost dark. A tall man stood out black against the bright oblong of the door. "'What are you doing here?' said a deep, snarling voice. Chrisfield's eyes blinked. Automatically he got to his feet. It might be an officer. His eyes focused suddenly. It was Anderson's face that was between him and the light. In the greenish obscurity the skin looked chalk-white in contrast to the heavy eyebrows that met over the nose and the dark stubble on the chin. How is it you ain't out with the company? I'm barracks guard, muttered Chrisfield. He could feel the blood beating in his wrists and temples, stinging his eyes like fire. He was staring at the floor in front of Anderson's feet. Orders was all the companies was to go out and not leave any guard. Ah! We'll see about that when Sergeant Higgins comes in. Is this place tidy? You say I'm a goddamn liar, do you? Chrisfield felt suddenly cool and joyous. He felt anger taking possession of him. He seemed to be standing somewhere away from himself, watching himself get angry. This place has got to be cleaned up. That damn general may come back to look over quarters, went on Anderson coolly. You call me a goddamn liar, said Chrisfield again, putting as much insolence as he could summon into his voice. I guess you don't remember me. Yes, I know, you're the guy tried to run a knife into me once, said Anderson coolly, squaring his shoulders. I guess you've learned a little discipline by this time. Anyhow, you've got to clean this place up. God, they haven't even brushed the bird's nests down. Must be some company, said Anderson with a half-laugh. I ain't a-going to neither for you. Look here, you do it, or it'll be the worse for you shouted the sergeant in his deep, rasping voice. If ever I gets out of the army, I'm going to shoot you. You've picked on me enough. Chrisfield spoke slowly, as coolly as Anderson. Well, we'll see what a court-martial has to say to that. I don't give a hoot in hell what you do. Sergeant Anderson turned on his heel and went out twisting the corner button of his tunic in his big fingers. Already the sound of tramping feet was heard and the shouted order, Dismissed! Then men crowded into the shack, laughing and talking. Crisfield sat still on the end of the bunk, looking at the bright oblong of the door. Outside he saw Anderson talking to Sergeant Higgins. They shook hands, and Anderson disappeared. Crisfield heard Sergeant Higgins call after him. I guess the next time I see you off to put my heels together and salute. 
Anderson's booming laugh faded as he walked away. Sergeant Higgins came into the shack and walked straight up to Chrisfield, saying in a hard, official voice, "'You're under arrest. Small, guard this man. Get your gun and cartridge belt. I'll relieve you so you can get mess.' He went out. Everyone's eyes were turned curiously on Chrisfield. Small, a red-faced man with a long nose that hung down over his upper lip, shuffled sheepishly over to his place beside Chrisfield's cot and let the butt of his rifle come down with a bang on the floor. Somebody laughed. Andrews walked up to them, a look of trouble in his blue eyes and in the lines of his lean, tanned cheeks. "'What's the matter, Chris?' he said in a low voice. "'Told that bastard I didn't give a hoot in hell what he did,' said Chrisfield in a broken voice. "'Say, Andy, I don't think I ought to let anybody talk to him,' said Small in an apologetic tone. "'I don't see why Sarge always gives me all his dirty work.' Andrews walked off without replying. "'Never mind, Chris.' They won't do nothing to you, said Jenkins, grinning at him good-naturedly from the door. I don't give a hoot in hell what they do, said Chrisfield again. He lay back in his bunk and looked at the ceiling. The barracks was full of a bustle of cleaning up. Judkins was sweeping the floor with a broom made of dry sticks. Another man was knocking down the swallow's nests with a bayonet. The mud nests crumbled and fell on the floor and the bunks filling the air with a flutter of feathers and a smell of bird-lime. The little naked bodies, with their orange bills too big for them, gave a soft plump when they hit the boards of the floor, where they lay giving faint, gasping squeaks. Meanwhile, with shrill little cries, the big swallows flew back and forth in the shanty, now and then striking the low roof. "'Say, pick em up, can't you?' said Small. Judkins was sweeping the little gasping bodies out among the dust and dirt. A stoutish man stooped and picked the little birds up one by one, puckering his lips into an expression of tenderness. He made his two hands into a nest-shaped hollow, out of which stretched the long necks and the gaping orange mouths. Andrews ran into him at the door. "'Hello, Dad,' he said. "'What the hell? I just picked these up. So they couldn't let the poor little devils stay there?' God, it looks to me as if they went out of their way to give pain to everything, bird, beast, or man. War ain't no picnic, said Judkins. Well, goddammit, isn't that a reason for not going out of your way to raise more hell with people's feelings than you have to? A face with peaked chin and nose on which was stretched a parchment-colored skin appeared in the door. Hello, boys, said the Y man. I just thought I'd tell you I'm going to open up the canteen tomorrow in the last shack on the Bocor Road. There'll be chocolate, ciggies, soap, and everything. Everybody cheered. The Y-man beamed. His eye lit on the little birds in Dad's hands. How could you, he said, an American soldier being deliberately cruel. I would never have believed it. You've got something to learn, muttered Dad, waddling out into the twilight on his bandy legs. Crisfield had been watching the scene at the door with unseeing eyes. A terrified nervousness that he tried to beat off had come over him. 
it was useless to repeat to himself again and again that he didn't give a damn the prospect of being brought up alone before all those officers of being cross-questioned by those curt voices frightened him he would rather have been lashed whatever was he to say he kept asking himself he would only get mixed up or say things he didn't mean to or else he wouldn't be able to get a word out at all if only andy could go up with him andy was educated like the officers were he had more learning than the whole shooting match put together he'd be able to defend himself and defend his friends too if only they'd let him i felt just like those little birds that time they got the beat on our trench at bodicor said jenkins laughing chrisfield listened to the talk about him as if from another world already he was cut off from his outfit he'd disappear and they'd never know or care what became of him the mess call blew and the men filed out he could hear their talk outside and the faint sound of their mess kits as they opened them he lay on his bunk staring up into the dark a faint blue light still came from outside giving a curious purple color to small's red face and long drooping nose at the end of which hung a glistening drop of moisture Chrisfield found Andrews washing a shirt in the brook that flowed through the ruins of the village the other side of the road from the buildings where the division was quartered. The blue sky flecked with pinkish-white clouds gave a shimmer of blue and lavender and white to the bright water. At the bottom could be seen battered helmets and bits of equipment and tin cans that had once held meat. Andrews turned his head. He had a smudge of mud down his nose and soap suds on his chin. "'Hello, Chris,' he said, looking him in the eyes with his sparkling blue eyes. "'How's things?' There was a faint, anxious frown on his forehead. Two-thirds of one month's pay and confined to quarters,' said Chrisfield cheerfully. "'Gee, they were easy.' "'Um, hum. Said I was a good shot and all that, so they'd let me off this time.' Andrews started scrubbing in his shirt again. I've got this shirt so full of mud I don't think I ever will get it clean, he said. Move your old hide away, Andy. I'll wash it. You ain't no good for nothing. Hell no, I'll do it. Move your hide out of there. Thanks awfully. Andrews got to his feet and wiped the mud off his nose with his bare forearm. I'm going to shoot that bastard, said Chrisfield, scrubbing at the shirt. Don't be an ass, Chris. I swear to God I am. What's the use of getting all wrought up? The thing's over. You'll probably never see him again. I ain't all het up. I'm going to do it, though. He wrung the shirt out carefully and flipped Andrews in the face with it. There you are, he said. You're a good fellow, Chris, even if you are an ass. Tell me we're going into the line in a day or two. There's been a devil of a lot of artillery going up the road. French, British, every old kind. They tell me they's raisin' hell in the Oregon forest. They walked slowly across the road. A motorcycle dispatch rider whizzed past them. It's them guys has the fun, said Chrisfield. I don't believe anybody has much. What about the officers? They're too busy feeling important to have a real hell of a time. The hard, cold rain beat like a lash in his face. 
There was no light anywhere and no sound but the hiss of the rain in the grass. His eyes strained to see through the dark until red and yellow blotches danced before them. He walked very slowly and carefully, holding something very gently in his hand under his raincoat. He felt himself full of strange, subdued fury. He seemed to be walking behind himself, spying on his own actions. And what he saw made him feel joyously happy, made him want to sing. He turned so that the rain beat against his cheek. Under his helmet he felt his hair full of sweat that ran with the rain down his glowing face. His fingers clutched very carefully the smooth stick he had in his hand. He stopped and shut his eyes for a moment. Through the hiss of the rain he had heard a sound of men talking in one of the shanties. When he shut his eyes he saw the white face of Anderson before him, with its unshaven chin and the eyebrows that met across the nose. Suddenly he felt the wall of a house in front of him. He put out his hand. His hand jerked back from the rough, wet feel of the tar paper, as if it had touched something dead. He groped along the wall, stepping very cautiously. He felt as he had felt reconnoitering in the Brangy wood. Phrases came to his mind as they had then. Without thinking what they meant, the words, Make the world safe for democracy, formed themselves in his head. They were very comforting. They occupied his thoughts. He said them to himself again and again. Meanwhile his free hand was fumbling very carefully with the fastening that held the wooden shutter over a window. The shutter opened very little, creaking loudly, louder than the patter of rain on the roof of the shack. A stream of water from the roof was pouring into his face. Suddenly a beam of light transformed everything, cutting the darkness in two. The rain glittered like a bead curtain. Crisfield was looking into a little room where a lamp was burning. At a table covered with printed blanks of different sizes sat a corporal. Behind him was a bunk and a pile of equipment. The corporal was reading a magazine. Crisfield looked at him a long time. His fingers were tight about the smooth stick. There was no one else in the room. A sort of panic seized Crisfield. He strode away noisily from the window and pushed open the door of the shack. "'Where's Sergeant Anderson?' he asked in a breathless voice of the first man he saw. "'Corpse there, if it's anything important,' said the man. "'Anderson's gone to an OTC. Left day before yesterday.' Crisfield was out in the rain again. It was beating straight in his face, so that his eyes were full of water. He was trembling. He had suddenly become terrified. The smooth stick he held seemed to burn him. He was straining his ears for an explosion. Walking straight before him down the road, he went faster and faster, as if trying to escape from it. He stumbled on a pile of stones. Automatically he pulled the string out of the grenade and threw it far from him. There was a minute's pause. Red flame spurted in the middle of the wheat field. He felt the sharp crash in his eardrums. He walked fast through the rain. Behind him, at the door of the shack, he could hear excited voices. He walked recklessly on, 
the rain blinding him. When he finally stepped into the light, he was so dazzled he could not see who was in the wine shop. Well, I'll be damned, Chris, said Andrews's voice. Chrisfield blinked the rain out of his lashes. Andrews sat writing with a pile of papers before him and a bottle of champagne. It seemed to Chrisfield to soothe his nerves to hear Andy's voice. He wished he would go on talking a long time without a pause. If you aren't the crowning idiot of the ages, Andrews went on in a low voice. He took Chrisfield by the arm and led him into the little back room, where there was a high bed with a brown coverlet and a big kitchen table on which were the remnants of a meal. What's the matter? Your arm's trembling like the devil. But why? Oh, pardon, Crampette. C'est un ami. You know Crampette, don't you? He pointed to the youngish woman who had just appeared from behind the bed. She had a flabby rose face and violet circles under her eyes, dark as if they'd been made by blows, and untidy hair. A dirty grey muslin dress with half the hooks off held in badly her large breasts and flabby figure. Chrisfield looked at her greedily, feeling his furious irritation flame into one desire. "'What's the matter with you, Chris?' You're crazy to break out of quarters this way. Say, Andy, get out of here. I ain't your sort anyway. Get out of here. You're a wild man, I'll grant you that. But I'd just as soon be your sort as anyone else's. Have a drink. Not now. Andrews sat down with his bottle and his papers, pushing away the broken plates full of stale food to make a place on the greasy table. He took a gulp out of the bottle that made him cough then put the end of his pencil in his mouth and stared gravely at the paper. "'No, I'm your sort, Chris,' he said over his shoulder. "'Only they've tamed me. Oh, God, how tame I am!' Chrisfield did not listen to what he was saying. He stood in front of the woman, staring in her face. She looked at him in a stupid, frightened way. He felt in his pockets for some money. As he had just been paid, he had a fifty-franc note. He spread it out carefully before her. Her eyes glistened. The pupils seemed to grow smaller as they fastened on the bit of daintily colored paper. He crumpled it up suddenly in his fist and shoved it down between her breasts. Sometime later, Chrisfield sat down in front of Andrews. He still had his wet slicker on. "'I guess you think I'm a swine.' he said in his normal voice. I guess you're about right. No, I don't, said Andrews. Something made him put his hand on Chrisfield's hand that lay on the table. It had a feeling of cool health. Say, why were you trembling so when you came in here? You seem all right now. Oh, I don't know, said Chrisfield in a soft, resonant voice. They were silent for a long while. They could hear the woman's footsteps going and coming behind them. "'Let's go home,' said Chrisfield. "'All right. Bonsoir, Crampette.' Outside the rain had stopped. A stormy wind had torn the clouds to rags. Here and there clusters of stars showed through. They splashed merrily through the puddles, but here and there reflected a patch of stars when the wind was not ruffling them. Christ, I wish I was like you, Andy, said Chrisfield. You don't want to be like me, Chris. I'm no sort of person at all. I'm tame. 
Oh, you don't know how damn tame I am. Learning sure do help a feller to get along in the world. Yes, but what's the use of getting along if you haven't any world to get along in? Chris, I belong to a crowd that just fakes learning. I guess the best thing that can happen to us is to get killed in this butchery. We're a tame generation. It's you that it matters to kill. I ain't no good for anything. I don't give a damn. Laudia feels sleepy. As they slipped into the door of their quarters, the sergeant looked at Chrisfield searchingly. Andrews spoke up at once. There's some rumors going on at the latrine, Sarge. The fellows from the 32nd say we're going to march into Hell's Half Acre about Thursday. A lot they know about it. That's the latest edition of the latrine news. The hell it is. Well, do you want to know something, Andrews? It'll be before Thursday or I'm a Dutchman. Sergeant Higgins put on a great air of mystery. Chrisfield went to his bunk, undressed quietly and climbed into his blankets. He stretched his arms languidly a couple of times, and while Andrews was still talking to the sergeant, fell asleep. End of section 7